Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And yeah, I will be reading all of them. It, it will make sense as we go along in the, in the sermon. So we'll do um, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and then we'll go to our passage in 1 Timothy. And so if you are there in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, second chapter, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven, heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, and you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair 
in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, having uh, heard your word to us this morning, we pray that now in these next few moments, you will help us to have clarity of thought, uh, but more so the illumination of your spirit to help us to understand your word so that we could uh, believe it and apply it to our lives. And we ask that you would do that here and now among us through your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, amen. <clears throat> well, as much as I tried to get out of it, I'm going to deal with a controversial passage today. It, uh, if you uh, were not paying attention, this is uh, maybe one of the most controversial passages actually in our day today, and has been probably for uh, a number of years for it offends the sensibilities of, of many today. Um, one of the largest Protestant, the, lar the largest Protestant denomination in the country. This is actually a real significant issue. I'm referring to the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because they are wrestling through. There, there were a whole bunch of churches that had women as pastors, which meant they were in the office, the teaching office of the church which is in violation of their uh, Baptist faith and message, their confessional statement. And so uh, very well-known controversy over the last couple of years dealing with this very issue so much so that one of the largest churches in America, not just in that denomination, but one of the largest churches in America, they disfellowshipped Rick Warren's church, Saddleback, out in California for that very reason. They, were, they had women who were in the office of teaching uh, and had the office of elder in the church. And so this is a controversial and contentious passage because it centers around largely around this passage. This passage is cited as proof that the Bible is anti-woman or that the Bible and Christianity is, is chauvinistic, male chauvinism, or it contributes to toxic masculinity or patriarchy. Or that Christianity reinforces ancient forms of male prejudice against women. The belief that, women, that men are superior in terms of ability and intelligence, etc. This is what is often accused of Christianity and of the Bible. Largely related to passages like this one. This, has, uh, this passage has all the hallmarks of uh, hate, according to its critics. Telling women what they can and cannot wear. Forcing women to be quiet, suggesting women have less discernment or are more gullible than men. And lastly, what is that whole women will be saved through childbearing uh, thing about? So this morning, I'd like to, for us to unpack this passage. You can pray for me as we do so. 
I appreciate that. But I want to begin, and you have a, a handout uh, in your in your handout is an outline for us to follow. And let me just give you all four of the points right up front. I don't often do this, but let's, let me let me give you all four, and then we'll kind of walk through them so you can see where we're going. <clears throat> Here are the four points. First, I want to deal with the issue of what women wear. And, and by the way, the larger topic here is women and worship, okay? If you saw the larger context of chapter 2, Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege, who is left in Ephesus to deal with issues in the church. And in all of chapter 2, chapter 1, he's talking to him about what he must do to deal with the false teachers that are in the church. And then in chapter 2, he gets to the issue of what must be conducted in public worship. Notice that it began in chapter 2, verse 1, with prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, right? This is kind of, he's talking about when they gather together for Christian worship, and he ends with, in verse 8, kind of coming back around to it, I desire that in every place, meeting place, that the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without quarreling. He's talking, in this context, it's about when the church gathers for worship in particular. So the whole setting here is women and worship. Women in the gathering of the church. And so Paul is, we're going to look at Paul dealing with when the women gather together in church, what women wear, um, and then women at worship in verses 11 and 12. And then Paul's biblical basis in verses 13 and 14 for the instruction that he gives. And then lastly, we'll deal with the question about saved through childbearing. What does that mean? So let's, let's go through these four. Here's the first one. What women wear. Verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, does that mean in this passage that women are forbidden from wearing any of those things? I know um, there's some Christian groups who, who forbid that very thing. Are women forbidden from having braided hair, gold pearls, or expensive clothing? No. Let's, uh, I invite you to look to a passage, and, and let me explain why, I see, why I'm saying no here. Is he's saying no, no. He's saying that that's not primarily what this is about, how they are to adorn themselves. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And it's also on the slide here, too. 1 Peter gives a very similar instruction to what Paul is giving here. It's almost, it's almost verbatim. It sounds very, very similar. And notice Peter says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Okay? Is Peter saying, do not wear clothes? No, the sense is, do, do not make an emphasis of outward. He's going to say, do not let your adorning be external. You mean... The, 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 the way that you present yourself, don't let the, uh, the focus of it be the external things. He continues in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight 
is very precious. So plainness is not a sign of godly Christian womanhood. You can wear clothes. You can wear clothes that fit. You don't have to have baggy clothes. Yes, you can do your nails and hair, etc. The point is that you're not making your outward appearance your primary concern. Rather, he's saying you should focus on your inward adorning. And adorning here is, is not just what you put on, but it's like how you are presenting yourself and how you are, um, you're conveying yourself through your conduct and through those kinds of things. So, let your, so there's a difference between the outward adorning, don't let that be your focus, and your inward adorning. And I love how Peter says it, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Or as Paul puts it back in the Timothy passage, he says, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? When people look at you and see how you behave in the church, should the first thing that come to their mind be your Clothes, your accessories, your jewelry, your makeup, and your hairstyle. Or is the first thing that they think about you is she seems like a godly woman. That she trusts in her Lord. Doesn't mean that you can't have those things, but what is it that people notice about you? Maybe you can think of someone even, you know, in our church or someone else that go, that. The, the words that Timothy is using there, the hidden person of the heart, imperishable beauty, quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit. I, I have a picture in my mind of several women that I'm like, oh, that's, that's who comes to my mind when I think of that. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is let that be your focus. Let that be your focus. So the Apostle Paul is selling to the Ephesian ladies through, through Timothy, hey, ladies, when you gather to worship, don't make a show of your externals. Make a show, make a demonstration to everyone of your true spirit, your godliness and in good works. So that's, that's his instruction in verses 1, or excuse me, 9 and 10, dealing with what women wear. But now we get to the more tricky passage, which is here about women in worship in verses 11 and 12. Where he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I want to look at a couple of things here. He talks about what is permitted when the church is gathered together. And, and in particular, uh, how the women are to be thought of as the church gathers together. And what is not permitted. Notice what he permits here. Them to learn. For women to be disciples. For men and women, young and old, rich and poor, were gathered together in the church. And they would hear instruction from the apostles. They would hear the, the writings, the letters of the dis, different apostles. They would hear the, the Old Testament scriptures be read. And this continued on through into the early church. And women were to learn. They were to learn 
What the Bible said, they were to learn theology. I've never read this book. I've heard about it before, but The Handmaid's Tale, I've, I've seen caricatures of that kind of thing, and it seems to be a ridiculous caricature of how women are treated in the church as a kind of a condemnation against them. That they, This is not what Paul is saying. He's saying, yes, women should learn. Now they need to learn quietly with and, and all submissiveness. Well, and frankly, those are traits of any disciple or any learner. I, I would have a hard time thinking that Paul, uh, on hearing about the men in the congregation, that they were um, boisterous and loud and disagreeable when the teaching was happening. And Paul was like, oh, if it's the men, that's fine. No, that's not what the apostle Paul would tolerate. Any learner is to be humble and teachable and eager, seeking to understand what the teacher of Scripture is trying to say. So in other words, Paul's instruction here is uh, that women are to learn in the church like anyone else is to learn in the church. Uh, now, apparently, Paul might have been dealing with an issue that perhaps there were some women that had in their freedom in Christ, maybe they thought they could be rude and interrupt and those kinds of things. And then maybe Paul is kind of like tamping that down. But he's saying, no, that you can't be loud and boisterous and, uh, and approach the, the gathering of the church when the scriptures are being taught and the apostles are teaching is being uh, communicated with obstinate skepticism. No, nobody is. And so the women are need to learn along with the men. So that is what's permitted. And then what's not permitted, though, is this is where it gets kind of controversial. To teach and to exercise authority over a man. Now, you need to take these together. And it's in the context of the church, gathering for worship and for prayer. When you do so, the general consensus is that teaching and preaching office in the church is to be limited to qualified men as qualified by Scripture. And I'll say that again. Taking all of this together, that he does not allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man in the context of the church, in worship, and in prayer, the, the general consensus is that the teaching and preaching office in the church is limited to qualified men. And we're going to get to more of this as we get to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, when he talks about uh, elders in the church. And as I said, this is a controversial issue now in the church. And there's a controversial issue, as I said, in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that, that churches hold fast to this understanding of this passage that the office of the teaching office in the church with elders, pastors, is to be reserved for qualified men and not for women. Well, I'll explain why is because the exegetical gymnastics that you have to do to work around this passage to appoint women as elders and teachers or pastors in the church ends up affecting so much more than just that. Wayne Grudem has done a, a great deal of study uh, on statistics on denominations that have moved to allowing 
uh, ordaining women as bishops or pastors, you know, in all different denominations. And he is charted through all of the major denominations that have done this. And it, and it always follows this typical pattern. Okay? And this has been going on for, for my lifetime for fifty last 50 years or so. And this is the pattern. Churches will make the decision to appoint women as pastors or teachers or elders or bishops or whatever in the church. And then eventually that church moves to the approval or acceptance of same-sex relationships. Now you're sitting here, well, how did you jump from that to that? Let me tell you, because Paul, what's, what undergirds this whole thing is that the apostle Paul is saying, there's a difference between men and women. And that's embedded in creation. We're going to get to more of that in a second. And so if you strip out that difference and you start to make the changes to interpreting the Bible and passages that make a clear distinction between the roles of men and women, then you're going to start to, that's going to start to affect all of the other distinctions between men and women. And you can chart this, the, the Methodists, the, the Lutheran denominations, and I'm, I mean, there's lots of different ones. I'm talking about the mainline ones. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in, the, in America, the Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the Episcopal Church, you name it. You go on, Grunem has done all this study. You go from, um, from accepting women as teaching office in the church to approval of same-sex uh, uh, relationships. And there has been a trajectory, and you could actually kind of see, actually, if you do that and then it leads to this, you could start to see some other things, like you will start to approve same-sex marriage. And then you will have gay pastors. And then if you kind of trot it off a little bit more, you could, people called this like 10 years ago. Well, what's stopping you from having drag queen pastors or trans pastors? I, and, and I'm, I mean, and now you could go onto social media accounts and see them all the time. And let me tell you, that's not a result of the emergence of social media. They didn't exist. So this is the trajectory. You can see it and you can predict it. And so 15 years ago when I was reading this stuff and I started to see it, I was like, you know, I bet you that church or this denomination or this person, they're going to start accepting it. And I even said that to some people. I go, I bet you Andy Stanley. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I said this years ago. You know what? Andy Stanley's church is, boy, watch out. Because in... Ah, he's good. Look at where he is now. They're hosting an LGBTQ conference. Charles Stanley's son. So, and, and here's why. It all hinges on that. It hinges on that interpretation. Because the, the same exegetical mechanism that is used to sidestep the distinction between the sexes so that uh, can be used to sidestep the distinction between sexes is in all other places. The same me uh, uh, mental gymnastics that approve women as pastors and preachers are the same mental gymnastics that are used for approving of same-sex uh, relationships. They operate on the same logical foundation. And there is the thing about the slippery slope fallacies is sometimes the slope slips. And it all hinges on this. And so I've said this before, too. Show me a church that, that has um, approved same-sex marriage, but it's, boy, we're going to follow God's word on having only men preachers. 
Show me one. There's not a single one. Because it all hinges on this. It all hinges on this. And so, I remember when we started Redeemer, and I, I, I said, we're going to hold to this. And it was, um, that was, I said, we just have to hold to this. We're not, we, we can't waver in this. Despite what the culture at large is willing to do, we reserve the teaching office in the church to qualified men. It's not every man. It's the, the ones, who, and we'll get to that in the next chapter. But to qualified men in Scripture because we maintain there's a distinction between men and women in the church. And it is by God's design, and it is good. It is good. Amen. So here's a couple of bad takes then about this passage that well then what you're saying is or, or some some other uh, denominations or churches that that follow the similar god but here's the reason that's gift so here i'm giving bad reasons for why churches say yes we're only reserving the teaching office to men here's one only men are to be pastors because women have less discernment and are easily deceived like eve was okay that's a bad take and i'm going to address these here in a moment or here's another one. Only men are to be pastors because all women are to submit to all men. We'll get some groans with that one. Um, that's also a bad take. And let me explain. So let's get to now Paul's biblical basis that he gives for maintaining this distinction. Why this needs to happen in the church. And the biblical basis is there in verses 13 and 14. Right? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. On what basis is Paul making these distinctions? And in this instruction, why is he doing so? Some accuse Paul of just being, he's a man of his time. And it was a male chauvinistic times, especially from his Jewish background. And uh, that his reason for not allowing women to teach in, in congregation, especially a Gentile one like in Ephesus, is just grounded in his male-dominant Jewish culture. And they say, culture, culture, culture. But look at where Paul goes. Paul doesn't go to culture. He goes to creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And notice the, the, how it fits this uh, verse 13 directly goes with chapter 2 of Genesis. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's saying that that creation order actually has some theological significance. That's what Paul's saying. Adam was formed out of the ground. He breathed into him, and then there was no suitable helper. And so he caused the man to fall asleep, and he took a, a rib, or it's a it's his piece of his side, and then he fashioned the woman as a part of him, and then he brings the man and the woman together. There was an order there. He didn't go, and I fashioned out of the ground a man and a woman, and then I breathed into it. He doesn't, there's a, dis, and Paul is saying, you know, it may be kind of a mysterious thing, but there's a theological reason why, why they were in that order. He doesn't ground his argument in culture. He grounds it in creation. And so verse 13 goes with Genesis 2, and then notice verse 14 goes with Genesis chapter 3 on the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this is where some of the bad takes come. See? Ah, Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. Therefore, 
Therefore, women shouldn't be allowed to be teachers because they're more easily deceived. And it's so strange. I've, I, I know people who are at the churches like that, and yet they, they, they have the women teach the Sunday school class, which just doesn't make any sense to me, right? Like, let, let's say you're more deceptive, you know, you're more able to be deceived. We can't have you teaching everybody. Teach our little ones. That, like, that didn't make any sense. That was kind of a joke, but I have, I have heard of churches that do that. No, that's not the reason. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Is not saying it, all of the fault lands with Eve here. He's not saying that. Notice it's very important to go back and think through the sequence of what happened in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, which is why I read the whole thing. Remember the sequence, right? Man was formed first, and then Eve was formed, and then the command not to eat the tree, right? And then the fall. No. The order was man was formed first, the command given not to eat from the tree, and then the woman was formed, and then the fall. And then Satan comes to who? Does he come to Adam? No, he comes to Eve. He comes to Eve. And so perhaps, you know, maybe he, he's, he's trying to re- go back in the reverse order. Satan's tactic is to go through the woman and not through the man. Even in the passage itself in Genesis 3, it says in the, she was deceived by the serpent. It's important to keep that sequence in mind. Because it wasn't, the fault doesn't lie with Eve. The fault for the sin in the world does not lie with Eve. It lies with Adam. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, speaking of deception, of Eve being deceived and Adam not being deceived, for 2 Corinthians chapter 11, For I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, he's talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, you know, what I'm fearful for you guys is, is as Eve was deceived by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Notice he's saying there, the woman was deceived and Adam was not deceived. And it's very explicit here in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived. What is that saying? Is that saying that Adam has greater discernment than the woman? Or is it saying that Adam has greater culpability than the woman? Why? Because Adam knew the command. He'd received it firsthand. Adam was there. That very last line in Genesis chapter 3 is so significant when the woman takes, excuse me, in um, Genesis 3, <clears throat> that last, the last sentence there is so, and often it gets overlooked in what happens. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Friends, he was standing there that whole time. 
He was standing there. We watch, uh, you know, this, and some of the kids have seen this story where they did, where you could see the entire biblical story, and you know, um, it's called Long Story Short. And there's a scene where the serpent, which is like this green sock, you know, and he tempts the woman to eat the fruit. And it, but Adam's not even there. And then so she eats of it. And then Adam comes around the corner. And is like, hey, I'm hungry. You got any food? You know, and I'm like, it's very funny and great. But that misses a key point here. Adam was there that whole time. Adam knew the command. He was there, saw it happen, and didn't stop it. Adam was not deceived. To say that Adam was not deceived, that's not a compliment. To say that Adam was not deceived is an indictment. Adam was not deceived is a, state of, is a statement that he wasn't tricked into sinning. He did so deliberately. That Adam was not deceived, it's not a statement that men are smarter or more spiritually discerning than women. He was willing to let this happen and for sin to happen and then for her to take the fall. And you even saw that in the blaming, right? So God comes to, he doesn't come to Eve. Like he comes to the man and he's like, what? Or he comes to Eve, but then he goes, he comes to the man and he's like, well, it's the woman you gave me. It's your fault, to, uh, you know, denying his responsibility. So what, what needs to be, I think is helpful for understanding this passage in 1 Timothy is that Paul is not absolving Adam from responsibility of the entry of sin into the world. In, he's, when he's saying that, Eve was deceived and that Adam wasn't, he's, he's saying that a Adam's culpability is even greater. And you can see this connection to Adam not being absolved from the responsibility for sin in the world. You can see that elsewhere in Paul's writings, especially Romans chapter 5. I want you to notice this. Where Paul is talking about the how sin has come into the world. And notice that Eve is not really even present here in this discussion. It's all about Adam. One man. And notice how many times it says one. One man. One man's transgression. One man's disobedience. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But if the free gift is not like the trespass, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's trespass. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many 
will be made righteous. Now, let me just comment here on the glorious contrast here before we get to back to, to Adam and Eve here. The glorious contrast. Why does it all, why does the blame reside solely on that one man from whom the woman was, was fashioned? Because of the parallel to the one man of Jesus Christ through, for, uh, through whom salvation comes. Notice the contrast between the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is like a new Adam. Everywhere where Adam failed in his obligation and his responsibility and his condemnation now goes and spreads to every single one of us. So that one representative man, Jesus Christ, is how we get righteousness and justification before God. It's amazing. Which, by the way, it's not even related to this teaching at all. But there's, a, there's an insidious teaching that, that wants to deny the actual historicity of, uh, of, of Adam. That want to say that mankind's kind of evolved. And, you know, even Christians, I'm saying in the Christian church, they're saying it's not necessary for us to believe in an actual literal human person named Adam from whom everyone comes. Boy, when you do that, when Paul's saying here, if you do that, you're undermining the one person because there's a direct parallel. All of us are guilty because of one man. And all of us get righteousness because of one man. Anyway. Blame for sin's entry into the world then falls at the feet of one man's disobedience to Adam. Eve's not even mentioned. This is even more of an indictment to Adam. He stood there and allowed the woman to sin. She was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing, and he was letting her take the fall. So how does that relate then to the teaching and authority office in the church? Here's how. Adam's role before the fall was to be the head of the woman, to lead, to guide, to protect, and Adam failed in that job. Adam failed with Eve. But similarly, with the new Adam, Jesus Christ, he succeeds with his wife, the church. And I love it in Ephesians chapter 5, this great passage. Been to a couple of weddings in the last couple of weeks, and we've, I've heard this passage quite a bit, and it never ceases to amaze me. When he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He makes the connection between husbands and wives, and it's mirroring the marriage between Christ and his church, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. I, I bring that up to say, in all the ways that Adam failed to actually and accurately present the word to his wife, or to allow her into sin, Jesus Christ reverses that. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, and so back to creation, back to this, we're going to have men are teaching. There's a connection here. Maybe it's kind of hazy why Paul is doing this, but there's a connection here that this is why the teaching office is reserved for men and qualified in Scripture. And so lastly, is it too late to skip this one? Well, last question here. Saved through childbearing. What is going on here? So just let, let me kind of point out a couple of things uh, in this passage, and then we'll close. Let's read, let's read that passage. Follow along as I read. Okay. 
Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. This is, I'm not giving you the definitive answers here. There has been a lot of debate around this. But, but I, let me help you give some kind of uh, uh, hopefully helpful clarification. Let, let me, um, let's break this down into two uh, two things to keep in mind, two interpretive questions. It centers on the first one is, what is the meaning of the Greek word here, sozo, saved? What is, how is saved meant here? And then the second one is the identity of she. She, okay? Now, the word saved, we often think of when we see saved, it refers to salvation from sins, and it often does. But sometimes it's used in a general sense as a kind of rescue or deliverance from harm or from trouble, trouble. It's sometimes used in that way. You have to just kind of tell in the context. So that's one question to kind of keep in mind. What is, how, what's the meaning of saved here? And then who's the identity of she? Is it Christian women in Ephesus, as in verses 11 and 12? Or is it Eve of verses 13 and 14? Because sometimes it's, it's interpreted as if this is reference to Christian women. So let me give you the four interpretive options then based on those. Here's, here's one. The first one is using um, the salvation as being kept from harm and that the she is referring to Christian women. Here's the first one. You can understand it this way. Yet the Christian woman will be preserved, kept from harm through childbearing. So in other words... You know, this is how some understand it. And they would say, oh, so Christian women will have a special protection through the, the travails of childbirth. And I, don't, I don't think that that's what that means. There are people who believe this. And, and, but, but this is just not the one I makes sense to me. Here's the second one. And it's using, again, reference to she is reference to Christian women. And they saved is saving from their sins. And they would understand this. Yet... The Christian woman will be saved from her sins through childbearing, meaning that there's some sort of special means of salvation for women that's different from men. Or the suggestion here is that childbearing is an act and somehow merits salvation, which would totally go against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. By, for everyone, there's no distinction, male or female, right? Jew or Gentile. So I don't think it's that one either. I think it's a mistake to see the woman, she, she, as the woman of verses 11 and 12. Rather, she is actually a reference in the, the antecedent is, is, the closest antecedent is to Eve, right? So the immediately prior. So she is not any Christian woman. She is the woman, Eve, of verse 14. So here's how you would then understand that. Let's go with the saved as preserved from harm. For Eve, yet Eve will be preserved or kept from harm through her childbearing, which is even less likely, I think. And then here's, here's the fourth option. Here's the fourth option, is that it's reference to Eve, but it has something to do with salvation. So it says this, yet Eve will be saved from her sins through childbearing. And let me just add that there's many who interpret this as an illusion to 
the promise that we read in Genesis chapter 3. Because remember, that's all in this passage. Remember verse 13 is all chapter Genesis chapter 2. Verse 14 is all Genesis chapter 3. So it makes sense in verse 15 for Paul to just kind of mention an allusion to verse 15 in chapter 3. And so you'd understand it this way if you could see it. Eve will be saved from her sins through childbearing, capital C, the, the, through the promise that her seed is the redeemer who defeats the serpent. Right? Look at, go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is what is referred to as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel announcement. The promise here, even in Genesis chapter 3, that the one who caused all this ruin in the world, that caused Eve to be deceived, and, and Adam to just jump right into sin and lead to all of the problems of sin in the world, he says, you know what, I'm going to send an offspring of the woman is going to come, and you're going to bruise his heel, you know, a reference to Christ's suffering on the cross, and he shall bruise your head. Romans 16, right? It's going to crush Satan under his feet. So I know it's still kind of a clumsy reading, but again, this is a difficult passage. A lot of people have difficulty understanding, you know, trying to make sense of all of this. To me, I think it's maybe some kind of reference here to, to Eve and the promise of the one who's going to, to deliver, the, dele the, the, the redeemer who's going to come and save all who would trust in him, which is then why he switches. Notice at the end of verse 15, there's a switch in the pronouns. Okay, notice the switch in the pronouns. It's she will be saved through childbearing. And then notice the big hyphen along the M dash there. If they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. I think he's now talking about the Christian women. And he's talking, it's about a call to faith and love and holiness, trusting in the Savior who is coming to deliver his people. That's my best explanation for that. I don't, say, don't claim to have all the answers, but I think here it has a reference to that, that this evil serpent who started the whole mess, inflicting harm on that woman's offspring, but ultimately that woman's offspring will defeat him, and that offspring is Christ. He had to be human. He had to be make, like his brothers in every respect. Therefore, his children share in flesh and blood. He likewise had to partake of the same things. So that he might, through death, destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The serpent had deceived Eve. Her seed and offspring would defeat him. So let me give kind of my expanded paraphrase here of this passage. Sometimes I do this. Sometimes I kind of... Right? How would I write these in with these kind of weird interpretive questions? This is my paraphrase uh, of, of this passage. A Christian woman is to learn to be a disciple, to be instructed in the Christian faith, and it is, it is to do so like any other disciple would, listening quietly and attentively with all submissiveness to the teachers in the church, to be teachable and respectful to her elders like every Christian is to do. 
I do not permit a, a woman to hold the teaching office in the church. A woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why? Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Meaning Adam has the teaching leadership and headship role. This is true in the home and in the church. And Adam was not deceived. Rather, he sinned deliberately and stood by while he allowed the woman to take the fall. But unlike Adam, the woman was deceived by the serpent and became a transgressor. Therefore, she too needs to be saved from her transgression. Yet she will be saved from her transgression through the giving birth to a descendant, the seed of the woman who is the Messiah. And if they... Christian women, even all women who profess faith in Christ, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. They will be saved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Friends, we get the chance to take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for bearing with me on a very difficult and tricky passage. But I rejoice... Whether, whether Paul intends to allude there to Genesis chapter 3, I think that he does. But what we get to rejoice that God has promised, even in the midst of the fall, he has promised that he is going to send the seed of the woman who will crush and defeat Satan. And he indeed, he had his heel was, was struck by the serpent. And Christ suffered and died on that cross, but he was raised to life again on the third day. And he's ascended into heaven and he's ruling and reigning above. And he's given us this meal to mark that work of redemption that he has done for us. So let's take this together and invite you to stand with me as we pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could come into your presence and we thank you for this meal you give us this institution of the Lord's Supper that we take to remind us of the work of Christ, his broken body and shed blood, and that spiritually he is present here with us and that we are nourished by the work that he has accomplished for us. So we come to your table with joy and rejoicing and thank you for the work of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen.